This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hello, nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. Well, you wonderful nerds, my book has finally made it over to the UK and other parts of the world after having sold out of the first uh, print run. And I honestly just can't get over all of the incredible Instagram and Twitter photos you've all been posting and tagging me in. Um, that and your favorite illustrations. Oh my God, Sarah Richards art is just amazing. And so many more people are seeing it now. Honestly, it's just such a thrill. So thank you. If you've taken part in that, just honestly, like huge thank you from me. Or if you haven't gotten a copy of the book yet, and you want one, just a reminder that my book, Greek Mythology, The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes Handbook is available basically everywhere that books are sold. Um, it is available internationally, which is a question people ask all the time. Uh, just check a local shop that sells English books. Honestly, everyone basically can get it ordered in as far as I'm aware or have been told. Or better yet, you can also get signed copies um, from my local bookstore here in Victoria. They ship internationally. Sometimes international shipping can be a bit pricey, so you might want to go elsewhere. But if you feel like spending, you can get a signed copy from Monroe's Books here. And if you want, you can even get it personalized. I go down and write whatever you want on it. If you're looking for that, it is monroebooks.com. That's M-U-N-R-O books.com. 
But we are not here today to talk all about my book, so just a quick thank you there, but today is devoted to a subset of characters and a whole world of Greek mythology that I have long neglected, I have to say. Not for any reason, except other than, you know, I simply haven't gotten to it. Mostly because it is complex and weird and kind of confusing. Yes, I'm talking about the ocean. There is a lot going on in there, you know? Well, the ocean and the rivers and the river god whose name gives us the word for ocean. Weird stuff, honestly. Just like the sea itself. Weird and wonderful creatures and monsters from real life alongside even weirder and even more wonderful creatures and monsters of mythology. This is episode 127. Oceanus is a river god? Gods, creatures, and nymphs of the water. Earth encircling Oceanus. This is a term you'll hear a lot in Greek mythology and in epics, especially when we're talking about the beginning of things, the world's formation, how the oceans, rivers, and streams were laid out according to early Greek mythology. Oceanus, you might imagine, is where we get the word ocean. It is not, however, what we would actually consider to be the ocean, just to keep you on your toes. Oceanus is one of those very first titans birthed of Gaia and Uranus at the earliest moments of time and creation. But he was, in fact, an earth-encircling freshwater river. The Greeks believed that the lands of the world were surrounded by one large circular river, Oceanos. This, they understood, was where all of the rivers and streams and fresh water, anything of the planet stemmed from. For an early civilization, honestly, it's pretty brilliant. Like, you want to understand where all of this fresh water is coming from, but the only large body of water you have access to is a saltwater sea. So the reasonable explanation, then, is that there is some source of fresh water that is just too far away for you to see, and so large that it provides all of the fresh water of the earth. Thus, earth encircling Oceanos. Oceanos was both the river itself, this earth encircling river, and the titan god of personification of the river. Though it's kind of tough to say whether they believed that the there were two different people or they were one and the same. It's Greek mythology. If they were one and the same, the Titan God was somehow able to separate himself from the earth encircling river for long enough to have a whole slew of children with his wife, the Titan goddess Tethys, who is a water goddess herself, associated with the physicality of the earth encircling river, in addition to being the god Oceanos' wife. They worked together in a super harmonious water-related way. Together, Tethys and Oceanos would go on to spawn so, so many of the world's water gods. And by 
so many, I mean literally thousands. Truly, it's one of the most impressive couplings in all of Greek mythology. Hesiod gives us the full breadth of their progeny in the Theogony. Quote, Tethys bore to Oceanos the swirling Potomoi rivers, Nilos, Nile, Alpheos, and deep eddying Eridanos, Strymon and Myandros, Istros of the beautiful waters, Phasis and Rhesos and silver swirling Echoloios, Nessos and Rhodios, Heptaporos and Haliacmon, Grenicos and Isopos and Simois, who is godlike, Hermos and Penios and Kaikos, strongly flowing, and great Sangarios, and Ladon and Parthenios, Eunos and Ardescos and Scamandros, who is holy. Tethys brought forth also a race apart of daughters. Oceanids, with Lord Apollo and the rivers have the young in their keeping all over the earth, since this right from Zeus is given to them. They are Pitho, Admete, Ianthe, and Electra, Doris, and Primno, and Urania, like a goddess, Hippo, and Clymene, Rhodia, and Caleroe, Zuxo, and Clytea, and Idea, and Pasithoe, Plexora, and Galaxora, and lovely Dion, Melibosis, and Thoe, and Polydora the Shapely. Kirkaeus of the lovely stature and ox-eyed Pluto, Xanthi and Acasti, Perseus and Ionira, Petrae the lovely and Menestho, and Europa, Matus and Eurynome, Telesto robed in saffron, Chryseus and Asia and alluring Calypso, Eudora and Tike and Empheiro and Ochiro and Styx, who among them all has the greatest eminence. Now these are the eldest of the daughters who were born to Tethys and Oceanus, but there are many others besides these, for there are three thousand light-stepping daughters of Oceanus scattered far and wide, bright children among the goddesses, and all alike look after the earth and the depths of the standing water. That is 3,000 daughters of Oceanus and Tethys, and that's just the daughters. So all the rivers of the earth were the ones mentioned at the beginning, or certainly not all of them, but a good number. These were the sons of the two titans, and then the Oceanids, the daughters, watched over. The Greeks certainly understood the importance of fresh water and the sheer volume of rivers, streams, tributaries. The world of the river gods doesn't feature too deeply into many stories, but regardless, the ancient Greeks understood that it was vast and complex, a system of gods and goddesses and nymphs. They were just watching over their freshwater supply. These gods were vital.
This emphasis and importance of fresh water leads us to those 3,000 oceanids. But no, don't worry, I'm not about to read you 3,000 names, and I actually don't even believe there are 3,000 names to be read, fortunately. Still, the various nymphs of Greek mythology and how they were understood, how they interacted with nature and the earth, is fascinating. There are so, so many types of nymphs. Just so many. (laughs) Today we're only talking about water, and right now we're only talking about the freshwater nymphs, Oceanids of Oceanus and Tethys. Still, within that category of Oceanids, there existed the Nephili, who were cloud nymphs, the Ori, who were breeze nymphs, the Naiads, who were spring and fountain nymphs, the Limonides, who were for the pasture, and the Anthusi, who were flower nymphs. These, according to, at least, my favorite website in the world, theoi.com, were numbered amongst the Oceanids the children of Oceanus and Tethys. As for the first generation of Oceanids that were mentioned in the Hesiod quote, you may recognize some names, and rightly so. See, Asia was the Oceanid devoted to, you guessed it, Asia. Of course, this was just the region that the ancient Greeks considered to be Asia at the time. Essentially, it was like the Anatolian Peninsula area because they hadn't gone farther than that yet. According to some, she was married to the Titan Prometheus, making her even more important. Her sister, as you might have guessed, Europe, not the Europa of Crete, but another who was devoted to the continent as they knew it. And to round off the continents as the ancient Greeks understood them was Libya, the Oceanid devoted to northern Africa. Dodoni was the Oceanid of the region of Dodona, where Zeus's main oracle was located. Doris was the Oceanid of pure water, and she will come into play later in this episode. Eurynome was the Titan Oceanid who became mother of the Charities by Zeus. Another Oceanid who is sometimes considered to be that wife of Prometheus, depending on your source, was named Hesione, the same name as the woman Heracles saved last week from the Trojan Ketos. Further still, his wife is also sometimes called the Oceanid Pronoia, which means foresight and therefore makes the most sense. These days, this podcast seems to be just an endless, fascinating example of all the possible variations when we're talking about sourcing over hundreds of years. I love it so much. Cariclo was the Oceanid in the region of Mount Pelion, who became wife to everyone's favorite hero trainer, Chiron. There are two possible Oceanids named Clymene. <laughs> One married the Titan Iapetus, who would then become the mother of Prometheus and Epimetheus. The other was the mother of poor Phython with the Titan Helios, though sometimes that mother of Phython is also called Merope. Matis was considered an Oceanid, though mostly known as a Titan, because she was the mother of Athena herself, even if Zeus takes all the credit for, you know, eating Athena's mother and then birthing her from his head. Perseus was a really important Oceanid who became mother via Helios to our favorite sorceress of mythology, Circe, her sister Pacify too, and their brother Aetes, who was father to Medea. Pleione was the Oceanid who became mother of the Pleiades and the Titan Atlas. TK is most often considered simply the goddess of fortune, but she was also an Oceanid. Dion, who, according to Homer, is Aphrodite's mother, was also an Oceanid. So many of these Oceanid goddesses are counted among the Titans, which is sort of adding to the fascinating generational issues that are at play here, 
So while these titans are oceanids, they're daughters of Oceanus and Tethys, they're not nymphs, they're full-fledged titan goddesses, whereas later oceanids born of the same two gods lacked importance in the same way among the gods and were considered nymphs, more traditionally oceanids. I'm trying not to get too far into the weeds with all of these names and everything, but it's fascinating and you can kind of see the connections to who did what and who was important for what reason. And the last I'll mention among those Titan Oceanids is the last that Hesiod mentions too, the goddess Styx, whose name you well know. She is, as you've guessed, the Oceanid goddess of the river Styx, that famous river in the underworld. Because yes, even those rivers in the underworld needed oceanids to watch over them. And overall, that is the most important thing about these titan oceanids, and even the lesser water nymphs that were considered oceanids beyond the titans, and why they are vital, but don't necessarily get included in many of the sort of traditional narrative stories of myth. But they served a really important purpose. The Oceanids, Titans, Nymphs, whoever, watched over their river or stream or whatever body of fresh water they were assigned to. This is even more true for the Nymphs, whose lives were devoted to their rivers and streams, a little bit more so than the Titans, who also had jobs as goddesses of whatever, you know, Metis is the goddess of wisdom, TK the goddess of fortune. As far as I understand it, all bodies of water in the Greek world had a nymph devoted to it. They were watching over the water, protecting it, keeping track, just kind of hanging out. In some cases, they would encounter characters or gods along the way. Most importantly, though, they were just there, being the nymph of that bit of water. Because, well, water is pretty vital to everyone and everything's existence, especially fresh water what would we do without it? Hey, did you know there's a finite amount of water on this earth? Make the oceanids happy, would you? And don't waste water and support water conservation because we're wasteful as fuck these days. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. 
Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. So those were all the deities and nymphs and whatnot of freshwater. Because again, Oceanus, while confusing, is a freshwater god. But what about the sea? The thing we now call the ocean, just to fuck with everyone. Because as you might imagine, there are a lot of deities and nymphs and monsters associated with the saltwater sea. There weren't as many individual ones because they didn't have those individual tiny rivers and streams to deal with. But they were more concerned with the depths of the sea. And the sea begins with Pontus, the primordial god of the sea who was born sometimes by Gaia, just by herself, sometimes by Gaia and Uranus. Pontus was the god of the sea, but he was also in a way the sea itself. And his name was given to a region of the Mediterranean itself in the east, near where the Amazons lived. Pontus was the father of the first of the sea deities, and some of the most important of them. Because Poseidon, while god of the sea, isn't really important in today's episode. Pontus was the father of these first sea deities, with Gaia, who, yes, is also his mother. Just another great example of some of the grosser aspects of the Greek pantheon, especially at the beginning. Pontus with Gaia was the father of Nereus, who is the famed old man of the sea. He was a father of Phorcus, who's another primordial sea god, and Keto, a sea monster goddess, who would get together and become parents of, among others, Medusa and her Gorgon sisters. Finally, Pontus and Gaia were also the parents of the goddess Eurybea, who's the goddess of mastery over the sea, which frankly is just incredibly cool and I actually hadn't come across her before today. According to my, again, beloved theoi.com, Eurybea was the goddess of power over and mastery of the sea. She apparently presided over external forces, which influenced the sea, like the rise of the constellations, seasonal weather, and the power of the winds. <sighs> frankly, we need more stories about Eurybea. But as with so many gods and goddesses who have incredibly cool domains, there are no stories. The Greeks, though, still, they understood the power of the sea, and they understood the sheer volume of life and beings that lived within the depths of the Mediterranean that surrounded them. And as with everything, they developed a whole collection of concepts and deities to understand that voluminous sea. Nereus was the old man of the sea, that primordial god of the sea, and he was 
an incredible being. He, along with many other sea gods, was famous for being a shapeshifter. He could transform himself into absolutely anything. And typically he did this while he was trying to get away from someone or to like avoid answering their questions. When Heracles was in search of the Garden of the Hesperides for one of his labors, he had to seek the information from Nereus. Nereus transformed himself into creature after creature, slippery and writhing, trying his best to stay free of Heracles' grasp. But Heracles was Heracles, and he held on tight. So eventually, Nereus had to give it up and just tell Heracles where the Garden of the Hesperides was. Nereus, the old man of the sea, much like Oceanus, was the father of the nymphs of the sea, the water nymphs, Nereids. Nereus's wife was the titan goddess Doris, who was one of the Oceanids I mentioned earlier, a daughter of Oceanus and Tethys. A little bit of fresh water mixing with salt with these two. Nereus and Doris had many children, again, the Nereids, though not half as many as Oceanus and Tethys, don't worry, there were only 50 Nereids. But there are just two who we are concerned with today. The first is Thetis. Thetis was the daughter of Nereus and Doris, and she was certainly one of his most important and prominent children primarily because of who she married and therefore what child she gave birth to. See, Thetis was the wife of Peleus, though she wasn't particularly a fan of his. But she was the mother of Achilles, who she was an enormous fan of. Thetis married Peleus, not because she wanted to, nor because Peleus necessarily wanted to marry her. Thetis was forced to marry Peleus because of a prophecy. Gotta love a prophecy in Greek mythology. There was a prophecy that the child of Thetis would be stronger than even Zeus. This was, of course, not at all acceptable to Zeus. And so, in an attempt to mitigate this, Zeus had Thetis marry a mere mortal, the hero Peleus. And not even a particularly exciting hero, like Bellerophon or Cadmus, he was not. Though he did, at least, partake in the quest for the Golden Fleece. So he did have that to his name. The wedding of Peleus and Thetis was, as you might recall, a particularly memorable affair. It was attended by the gods, which was not at all a normal occurrence for a mortal wedding. And frankly, they may have learned their lesson from that day. You see, while the gods attended the wedding of Peleus and Thetis, there was one goddess who was notably left off of the guest list. Now, if you've listened to some earlier episodes of the podcast, you know exactly where I'm going, but I'm doing it again anyway, because this certain woman who was not invited to the wedding of Peleus and Thetis was Eris. And oh, how I love Eris. Eris wasn't invited to the wedding, and regardless of whether or not she actually cared enough to attend, she was miffed that she was the only one not invited. She was, after all, the goddess of strife. So really, they were kind of asking for it by not inviting her. And so, Eris orchestrated a little punishment for this. And she attended the party anyway, bringing with her a single golden apple with the phrase carved into it, T. Callisti, for the fairest. She tossed the apple into the party, aiming it so that it landed right at the feet of three goddesses who were standing together, Hera, 
Aphrodite, and Athena. The apple rolled toward them. It caught their attention. It was gold. Each of these goddesses determined that it must be for them, and each believed that she was the fairest. Each of them were also willing to fight for it. This part, I like to imagine, was really more of an invention of the patriarchy, because, I mean, what major goddess like them is petty enough to get involved into this big of a fight over a golden apple with an inscription on it? I just don't buy it. But, so the story goes, they did get this worked up over a single apple, and ultimately, their argument led to the judgment of Paris, where Paris was forced to choose between them, he chose Aphrodite, and thus started the Trojan War. I gloss over that bit, because, again, you can listen to the story itself. It is in one of the two Origin of the Trojan War episodes, both of which feature Thetis heavily. It's a good time. Still, the point here is... This is Thetis. That was her wedding, her very famous wedding. And after her very famous wedding, she gave birth to a very famous child, Achilles. Even more famous because of attempts to make him immortal. Because he took after his damn father. These are, of course, famous because Thetis ultimately left Achilles' one ankle vulnerable. You remember the ankle, I'm sure. There's a tendon named for it. And once more, you can listen to this whole story in the origin of the Trojan War episodes. Today, we're talking about water gods. Thetis, meanwhile, maintained her importance in the grand scheme of the gods, even as just an Ariad, a goddess of the sea. She held on to her stature amongst them. She played a huge role in the Trojan War because of her son. She did her best to ensure that a prophecy that told of the fate of Achilles, either he would live a long life and be forgotten, or be remembered forever for his strength and valor but die young, she did her best to ensure that the latter did not come true for Achilles. But in the end, she failed on that one. We all know of Achilles' death, and he sure is remembered. And while Thetis would have much rather had a son alive and boring, forgotten over the course of time, I'm sure she at least took a little bit of pride in knowing that the world sure would remember him forever. The other Nereid, daughter of Nereus and Doris, who we're concerned with in today's episode is Amphitrite. Amphitrite was the female personification of the sea. Apparently she was the loud moaning mother of fish, seals, and dolphins. Do I understand where loud moaning comes from? I mean, maybe it's just the sounds of the sea? I hope that's it. <laughs> While Aphrodite was the eldest daughter of Nereus and Doris, it seems that Thetis was somehow the head of the Nereids. But of course, Amphitrite would have other things to take over her life. Because Amphitrite was married to the underrated worst of the gods, Poseidon. Ugh. Much like her sister Thetis, Amphitrite did not want to marry Poseidon. Presumably, he felt 
that she was meant to be with him as the eldest Nereid, a goddess of the sea, the daughter of the old man of the sea, and therefore daughter of a man who was more the sea than Poseidon himself, one can see why Poseidon, the king of the sea, would want this woman for a wife. The way the sea is divided up between the gods is quite fascinating. See, Pontus is the sea, Nereus is the old man of the sea, Poseidon is the god and king of the sea. They're all gods of the sea, but Poseidon is the top dog god of the sea, whatever that is, the Olympian god of the sea, the one who was brother to Zeus and therefore won the Titanomachy, making him more powerful than those other much older primordial gods of the sea. Sailors would worship Poseidon. They would ask him for good winds and smooth sailing, though it was Nereus they were most likely to encounter along their journey. Amphitrite did not want to marry Poseidon, though again, we don't get an explicit reason why. I just assume she had, you know, encountered him or heard about literally anything he does. Because I fear I've given you the wrong idea about which god is the worst when it comes to the treatment of women and overall awfulness. See, I've indicated that it's Zeus because of the volume of women that he assaulted and all the other shitty things he did. In fact, though, I would argue it's Poseidon. He didn't assault as many women as Zeus, but he always seems to have been much more horrible and violent about it. Much more trouble. He was dangerous. If I were a woman in ancient Greece, it's Poseidon I would fear, with Zeus a very close second. And so, maybe for that reason, maybe just because she didn't fucking want to, Amphitrite attempted to avoid having to marry the shithead that is Poseidon. She actually traveled all the way to the ends of the world, where Atlas resides, holding the heavens on his shoulders, and there... She hid from Poseidon's advances, his continued requests for her to marry him no matter how many times she said no. But, well, much like Zeus is Zeus, Poseidon is Poseidon, and so eventually he sent the god Delphin, a sea god who was, yes, a dolphin, in search of Amphitrite. Delphin found her and managed to convince her, somehow, that she should indeed marry Poseidon. Now, hopefully convinced is the right word to use here. It's not great, but it's better than other ways of putting it. Regardless, Amphitrite was convinced, and so she returned to marry Poseidon. And then, beyond that, there is very little we know about Amphitrite. She was important overall. She was likely worshipped alongside her husband because she appears in a lot of imagery within Poseidon's temples. She had a number of children by him, notably the god Triton, who gives his name to Ariel's father in The Little Mermaid, though the real Triton is much more like his real father, Poseidon, and therefore much less jovial and much more problematic. No singing crabs here. And speaking of, Amphitrite is sometimes depicted with some kind of crab claw crown, which is very cool. She rides alongside Poseidon in his chariot, pulled by hippocamps, which are definitely one of my favorite Greek mythological creatures. They're seahorses, but literally seahorses, like top half horse, bottom half fish, and they were the size of horses pulling a chariot. Just 
quality creature action over there. And while the happenings at the bottom of the sea where all of the gods lived and laughed and loved were fairly unknown, I like to imagine that there was this whole other world of things going on down there. Like all of what you imagine taking place on Earth with heroes and gods defeating monsters and going on quests and getting punished. The whole mess, but in the sea. Like, say, Triton goes on a quest to bring back the golden fish scales and he brings along a whole crew with him and maybe there's a bunch of hippocamps and an octopus and a crab. No songs, though. Just violence and bloodshed. Anyway, this episode is, um, a thing. I'm getting carried away. I do love the sea. Oh, and maybe they use sharks as weapons? That would be very cool. The ancient Greeks understood the complexity of the sea. They knew it was, in large part, their life source, that it housed creatures they would never fully understand, and that dangerous, horrifying things lived beneath those waves. They gave the sea a full mythology's worth of gods and nymphs and creatures, sea monsters and hippocamps and giant crabs. But what those creatures and gods did down there remains pretty unknown, unless they came on land and interacted with the gods and mortals there, which they did sometimes do. But down below, they lived amongst those dolphins, sharks, octopus, crabs, and many, many fish. There were many Ketos, those sea monsters, alongside the goddess of sea monsters, Keto. There was so much to fear beneath the depths of the sea, but they needed it to live. They needed it to fish and to travel and to trade with other peoples around the Mediterranean. They knew it was a perilous place, so best to be making your regular prayers to Poseidon and Amphitrite, pouring your libations and sacrificing your hecatombs of cattle. Keep those gods of the sea happy. Keep those monstrous Ketos beneath the surface. Well, you magnificent and wonderful nerds, thank you so much for listening. I'll be honest, I feel like this episode went a little bit off of the rails. I'm trying to find ways of telling you about all of those minor characters that are really important in terms of understanding the world, but don't have narrative stories to tell. I want to make sure that I'm giving them their due, but also it's quite hard to make it into a coherent episode. And frankly, this one kind of got away from me. But at the same time, I hope you've learned a little bit about those characters that everyone's kind of heard of, but never knows much about. They're really interesting. The ocean is really cool and important. And I am glad that the ancient Greeks had such a crazy, if not narrative story to explain it all for themselves. All of that said, we're going to make sure to offset sort of less traditional episodes with 
stories, epics. Maybe I'll dive into a play soon or one of the more important myths that has a full storyline just to give it justice. Honestly, I haven't planned anything beyond this episode, uh, so who the fuck knows at this point? It has been a week. I do, however, have some really fun conversation episodes coming in. I spoke to Dr. Jeremy Swist about mythology and Medusa specifically in contemporary metal music. I talked to Dr. Victoria Austin about mythological fiction like Song of Achilles and Silence of the Girls and a whole slew of others. I talked to Laura Jenkinson Brown, who is the face behind the very fun and educational Greek myth comic series. I talked to her about the heroes of the Trojan War and also extensively about AC Odyssey, even though that was definitely not our original plan. And of course, I'm currently sorting out how to properly celebrate Pride Month with you all this year kind of run low on the stories themselves but as always we will be doing something epic and gay and queer that's for sure (laughs) you are all so fun and great and thank you so much for listening and hanging around for even these kind of in the weeds episodes i think they're important in the grand scheme of things you are all the best i am Liv, and i love this shit This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. 